we're on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. And he's completely right, apart from one thing. We. We don't have our foot in the, the accelerator. We are tied up and gagged and bound in the boot of the car and the ruling class are driving it. So it's not just a question of like, oh, we need to collectively come together and take our foot off the accelerator and maybe change course a bit, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have to find a way to cooperate, to untie ourselves and each other, burst <laughs> through the back seat, force the, the driver out of the driving seat of the moving car, learn how to drive and not drive off the cliff. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is James Schneider. James is the communications director for Progressive International, the co-founder of the left-wing grassroots movement Momentum, and the author of Our Block, How We Win. James is also the former director of strategic communications for Labour and Jeremy Corbyn. He joins me today to discuss the roots of the crises, explaining how they can be separated into three separate levels, each of which feeds the other and how to differentiate between the crises which are a permanent feature of fossil capitalism through social crises up to modes of production and energy systems. James then explains that given fossil capitalism is cannibalizing itself at this moment in history, how critical it is that the progressive movement unites across the different sub-movements to respond to the level one crises, energy use and energy rights. James gives a critique of reform versus revolution, explaining the problems with the Green New Deal and explaining what he describes as the communications catastrophe of degrowth. He explains the difference between intellectualization and political and social power, how to take ideas out of the academy and onto the streets. He explains his vision for a green democratic revolution, that we need an anti-regime campaign to overthrow the ruling class. And despite the immensity of this task, James remains hopeful, highlighting throughout the interview, they put so much effort into holding us down because they are not running the system well, because people know they are not running the system well, and because the vast majority of people around the world share socialist values and the pressure of that movement, the people's movement, is building. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. James, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So why is the world in crisis and what can we do about it? Well, I think... 
there are three different types of crisis and we need to keep all three of them in mind. Normally, we just focus on the first level of crisis, which I think we could call like system normal crisis. The, the system in which we live generates crisis for huge swathes of humanity. And that's a permanent feature. And that doesn't mean that the system as a whole is in crisis. In fact, it's a feature. So, you know, whether that is environmental destruction in one place, the systematic undervaluing, undervaluing of certain types of work, the underpay of, of other types of work, killing people, all of these things, these different crises are, are, are normal to the system. And yes, they move around and they come into uh, different formations, but that doesn't mean that there's a systemic crisis. Then there's a level up. You kind of zoom out from that type of crisis into crises within the social system as a whole. So these are not mere problems that affect some people, but they are uh, crises in the reproduction of the social system. So that might mean that there are too many crises going on on the first level in the system normal level, which is breeding too much revolt that is disrupting the, uh, disrupting the system. And this kind of second level, you can view that as uh, things like uh, class conflict or sometimes interstate conflict. This is the level that um, the Italian revolutionary theorist um, Antonio Gramsci was talking about when he said the crisis consists precisely of the fact that the old is dying and the new can't be born. That's talking about the, the social settlement, basically. And sometimes we focus on that level, and we're clearly in a crisis of that level as well. You know, we don't have uh, consent for the social system, the social settlement that we currently have. There is not broad-based support for it. And that's part of why we see political volatility, fracturing, and so on and so forth. And we don't have the kind of systemic leadership that you sometimes uh, see, which can lead to expand it, expansion for some groups of people, enough people to actually improve their living standards, and the promise of improved living standards to enough other people to maintain a kind of stability. But we've actually got a, a deeper, bigger crisis. There's another thing, if you zoom out further, which is to do with our, the mode of production and our energy system. So, uh, you know, we, our crisis is not just that um, there are some issues in financial, financialized capitalism or that people don't trust elites or that there's some other kind of challenge to the, the current social settlement. We have a deeper underlying problem that a massive driving force of the social system we've lived under for the last 200 years, which is basically fossil capitalism, is coming under intense strain because we are having to move from uh, fossil fuels as the source of our economic expansion. And you know, while we've had different social settlements at different times in history and in different countries, in the last 200 years, none of them has stepped outside of the, the essential expansionist logic of fossil capitalism. So you've had different distributions of, uh, of wealth and of power within given societies over the, the past 200 years, uh, but none have, been, none have stepped out of that logic. Now, 
we are coming to a crunch, uh, not yet primarily because of climate breakdown. You know, climate breakdown for you know, perhaps 10, 15 years has started to put some mild upward pressure on uh, prices, supply chains and disruption. And that's starting to get much larger and non, non-linear and will get, you know, projects to get much larger and much more uh, non-linear as things go. Um, but because of the limitation of fossil fuels themselves, you know, they're currently there's uh, about 45 years of um, oil and gas at current production levels in known reserves. Of course, we'll find more, but there is there is a crunch coming. And that isn't, you know, the crunch isn't just like you can switch from one type of energy system to another type of energy system. Um, you know, there isn't the infrastructure. We've developed over the last 200 years the infrastructure for a fossil capitalist system. And we don't have anything like approaching what would, allow the continuing expansion under existing terms under any other type of energy system. So that's, that's the basic contours of the, of the crisis, and each one sits within the other one. So uh, you know, we, we have a whole set of crises which could be normal to the functioning of the system, but there are many more of them because the system isn't functioning properly. That's creating crises within the, within the social settlement, but those can't be fundamentally resolved because the even larger issue, which is um, that the, the basis, the economic basis of the system, which has led to the most dramatic expansion of things over the last 200 years. I mean, if you look at global population, if you look at land use, if you look at material production, I mean, it's been gigantic. And that is what is coming under uh, a question. And it's coming under question not because of uh, you know, not for kind of good reasons, not because it's being challenged from class or gender or decolonial positions, although of course there are those challenges, but it's on its own terms. It hasn't found a way to uh, to to go beyond itself, to go beyond the, the essentially free inheritance that they had. Because if you look at you know, history in the grander sweep, not just in the last two hundred years, the condition, the other conditions for dramatic capitalist expansion have been present, which are you know, great pools of mainly looted capital, wealth from, uh, from other people, forced labour, uh, and organised merchant power. I mean, that's existed in many, many societies many times in history, but they haven't yielded um, basically self-propelling industrial production because they haven't, it, those those inputs haven't been connected to the other input, which is uh, an incredible energy dense source, which which has been fossil fuel. So I think that's that's the nature of the current crisis that we're. Thank you for that. It's a lot in there, and I'm sure we'll sort of go through each of these three layers in more detail throughout. Um, now, it seems almost silly to say, you know, what do we do about it as if there's like one solution? Because obviously there isn't one solution. Uh, any resilient ecosystem of action demands diversity. But from where you sit, your area of expertise, what do you think needs to be done? So I, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize the scale of the issue that we're not dealing with the areas that we, that we normally do and normally um, 
progressive campaigns and movements respond to the crisis which is immediately in front of them because that's the one that, that, that affects people. And those are very often normal system type crises. Uh, the, the role of um, progressive forces, progressive movements, the left, whatever you want to call, uh, call it over the last 200 years has been to try to unite those different revolts generated by system normal into a force that can uh, generate and then hopefully resolve a crisis at the, uh, at the social settlement level in favour of reducing some of those crises that, that affect people. And we don't have, at the moment, you know, very much force that move, that does bring together different types of um, revolt against the existing order, which are separated by geography, language, issue, location in the economy, location in society, and so on. Um, but even if we did have that thing, that's not enough because we need to be dealing with the first order issues as well, which do come down to, uh, which are both technical and political. The technical is fossil capitalism is, whether we like it or not, that that regime is going away. That regime is changing. And currently is not changing, led by anything good that is going to replace it. It's changing because it's failing on its, on its, on its own terms. So I think that has to be, our, our starting point. So we need to focus on, yes, we need to unite the different struggles, but we need to focus them then in on the first order issues. So that is things like uh, energy production, you know, en energy production, energy distribution, and who has rights and claims over energy. Then you get the next level down, which is production, both of food, products, services, and social reproduction and, uh, and fights, fights over that. And these things necessarily need to be um, internationalized. Then the next question is um, about timeframe, because we've got models for change. You know, we ha there have been substantial advances for, um, uh, that we've seen over the last 200 years within this larger system, within this larger regime of, of fossil capitalism. Um, but generally speaking, they've taken quite a long time. So they, they have a, a, a kind of radical social democratic type logic, which is you combine uh, mass movements and sometimes quick changes with reforms to institutional framework to get a better social setting. And we've had good examples of, uh, of that, but they've basically gone with the train of the system. So they, they say that the system is expanding. We want to modernize it further, but do it in a more rational way and socialize its returns. And you can see that from lots of different types of, um, you know, of, of radical progressive change from the Bolsheviks through European social democracy to the pink tide in Latin America. They all say, you know, Lenin says, Communism is Soviet power and electrification of the whole system. You know, it's basically modernized and socialized. Um, European social democracy is capitalism. If it's left to do its, it, do its own thing, ends in the Great Depression and world wars. So we're going to manage capitalism in a more efficient Keynesian manner. And therefore, we can socialize some of its returns. The um, pink tide in Latin America says we're getting we're getting nothing. We need to take the take the state, modernize, build infrastructure, and have 
mass programs to redistribute wealth and power in favor of the majority all did you know all did socializing in those directions but none of them could step outside of the broader the broader regime so i think we we have to start looking at things to do with very fast time frame and very profound change now that sounds kind of otherworldly and perhaps absurd from the perspective of of where we are but two things to to counter that i mean firstly we should be realistic and you know to be realistic we have to demand the nearly impossible because the trend scenarios otherwise are profoundly terrible and the other thing is things look closed because we are only entering into the system breakdown period and that will produce terrible threats but also opportunities and 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 openings and so i think what we have to do now is we're basically i mean maybe the science will show this in 10 years time or 50 years time or whatever but maybe 2023 is the year where in terms of climate breakdown we've entered non-linear breakdown things are jumping around much more we've had gradual changes gradual and bad changes let's say for the last 30 years now we're getting you know non-linear big jumps um and that's going to throw up some some very weird things so just to try to now hone that down into something um, uh, more manageable you know there are sort of two broad um programs or ideas that deal with this or that try to engage with this issue that have pockets of support one is the idea of a green new deal or a global green new deal and the other one is degrowth and i don't think that either of those work for different reasons so green new deal has although I, I would support a lot of the policies and the things within them but it, as as frameworks alone i don't think i so green new deal proposes that through a transfer of investment a certain percentage one and a half two percent a year basically not that much as a percentage of um the global economy we can build a, a green energy system to rapidly trans move away from fossil fuels and doing so will require more state direction more state involvement and so that we can socialize that system it basically follows the previous model which is why it seems superficially um attractive because you can it builds an alliance between some workers some bill payers people concerned about the environment and some capitalists who will benefit from owning this green infrastructure to make to make the changes now the problem with that is firstly um as you know your audience will not be uh, will not find surprising at all you can't just unplug fossil fuels and plug in clean energy you know mm-hmm. there there really is no such thing as straightforwardly renewable energy because the stuff that goes into making solar panels wind turbines and so on those things aren't renewable and they're far more complicated processes than just extraction of fossil fuels which is both in in technical terms relatively easy whereas building a wind turbine is extremely complicated it requires huge amounts of you know incredibly complex supply chain minerals from all over the world various different industrial processes along the way 
um, and we hadn't built the infrastructure, or even on things like steel, you know, there is, um, you can electrify the production of, of steel and therefore make it potentially green if your electricity grid is um, mainly clean energy. But that isn't like you take out one part and you put in another part. You're building an entirely different, um, uh, an entirely different production process. So the scale of what's required is 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 much much larger. And fundamentally, it isn't working anywhere. If you look at the most Green New Deal inflected policies currently on offer in the world. So you take the US with its um, with its Imperial uh, Inflation Reduction Act, French or nearshoring, you know, all of that stuff. It can also happen while they simultaneously open the Willow Oil Field in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, it, it, there's no reason why expanding investment into green energy can't go hand in hand with expansion of fossil fuels. Or the Absolutely. continuation of fossil fuels. And th- that the, the Green New Deal structure essentially leaves the political system and fundamental economic relations intact. Um, and so while it's superficially attractive and all of the individual policies within it, I would entirely support. Should we insulate homes? Yes, of course. Should we be building out public power for clean energy? Yes, of course. Should we have free or as close to free as possible uh, public tra- public transportation? Should we be electrifying things? All of those things are absolutely the case. And should the jobs that come with it be green? And should the- all of that stuff is, of course, correct. But it's insufficient because it's and it's just really scratching the surface. Then at the other end, you have uh, degrowth, which I think it, we, we have to get away from because it it without being too clumsy about it. It's such bad comms. <laughs> right. Like going back to the analysis at the beginning with the crisis thing, like normal crisis in the system for most people is degrowth. Okay. And like most people's living standards don't rise. That's, so it's, it's divorced from the experience that, that most people have. In, in, in the UK, you know, where we're, where we're speaking from, wages at the same level they were in 2005. Rents aren't, bills aren't, your groceries aren't, but your pay is. So, um, you know, most people have been experiencing degrowth. That's the comms reason why it's bad. The uh, hang on, wait, 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 wait. I just want to, I just want to jump. I just want to jump in here very quickly and say, most people are experiencing degrowth through the way that they are led to understand what degrowth is by a, you know, sort of. Um, vapid uh, policy lens in which any economic growth benefits everyone, which it doesn't because we know that wealth doesn't trickle down. I mean, real degrowth in the way... I'm not saying it's good or bad comms. I'm just saying real degrowth in the way that the degrowth scholars talk about would be also be a redistribution of resources, yeah, sure. which would benefit sure. so, so, everyone. So pick a different term. Oh, um, oh, right. Just, just for just for starters, let's go. Let's go more into it. Right. So it's a terrible term. We should never use it ever again. Right. But, <laughs> but also, there's an intellectual element to it, which, which is quite right. The idea that because society says we're going for GDP growth, that we have we live under fossil capitalism. There's a kind of 
like if we measured different things, we'd have different outcomes. It just isn't true. Like the 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 underlying uh, the the underlying logic, the reason why things have to expand isn't because we are measuring expansion and therefore things have to expand. It's like the, the the words are describing the reality. The reality isn't bending to the words. So, uh, you know, why why do we need to have economic expansion? Because there's three hundred trillion dollars of debt based on future expansion. So if we don't have future expansion, that's $300 trillion worth of debt, which isn't going to be repaid entirely, which means total financial crisis and so on and so forth, right? As in, it is baked into the system that it has to expand. It isn't, it, it isn't based on the fact that we've got the wrong metric because okay. it expanded before we had GDP growth as, uh, as a measure of expansion. And you know, for all the David Cameron saying, well, we should measure well-being as well, and you know, it, 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 it isn't really getting into the, the, the underlying dynamic of the system. Okay, I hear you. And I like that. The words are trying to create reality and reality is not bending. But when you go up a level um, of like economic thinking, do you not, and I'm, I'm probably betraying my total ignorance here, but do you, like, is it not that nobody really expects debt to be paid off anyway? And that's part of the fallacy with um with its very existence and why a lot of people are calling for like debt cancellation, for example. So it's, I mean, the, the debt has to be serviced and the reason why the debt won't be canceled or when it is canceled, it, it almost immediately comes back. You know, there was some debt cancellation for some heavily indebted countries in the year 2000 and now uh, one in four countries on earth can't service their, their, their debts. Um, th- th- of course, not all the debt will ever be paid back. That's not the point of it, but it has to be, it has to be serviced along the way. So there have to be returns to it. Now, that can happen either through just massive monetary expansion, which is what we've been having, or it can happen because of uh, underlying material expansion. Those, you know, those, those are the two things. I mean, and yet, then yes, people are calling for a debt jubilee, and yes, we should have a, a debt jubilee, and we're going to have to, you know, part of any solution we you know we're talking uh, i'm trying to talk here about regime change like mm-hmm. bigger than bigger than social system uh, social settlement change bigger than uh, uh you know at, at a much larger a much larger level so yes all those things would would have to happen um but they can't just happen this is the other this is the uh, my other critique with um uh, a lot of the degrowth discourse again very sympathetic to the basic thing about mm-hmm. uh, we need to have an economy that meets human needs within planetary boundaries. Right? That's it. That should be an incredibly obvious sentence that everybody can, uh, that everyone can agree on. How you then construct a social system to deliver it, both in theory and then build the power to do so, is an entirely different uh, is an entirely different matter, and it's not a it's not just a theoretical thing. You can't say, well, you know, if we had an economy that we measured these things in these particular ways, you know, you need to have the social power to force those that are in power to not carry on doing the things that they're doing. For example, we need to shut down fossil fuel production. You know, that doesn't just happen because we get a nicer theory of how a balanced economy or whatever we want to call it will, will work. You know, that requires political strategy and social power 
as well as technical plans for how to deliver it and how to deliver the alternative power that you're going to have to keep people's homes and keep people moving around and uh, and and grow food. Okay, hang on. I'm gonna yes. So I want to definitely I want to definitely take this juncture and go down there uh, talking about political and social power because I think we do see a lot of like intellectualization of the problem and people not really sure how to press and go essentially and it is like a big critique um that is very easy for the right wing to weaponize i just want just on this debt thing though <laughs> just just very quickly and i promise we won't stay here for very long because i understand that um i can't learn everything about debt in the next <clears throat> three minutes but i also definitely couldn't teach you everything about line <laughs> <laughs> leading blind that's fine let's see where we go like if 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 the global economy is expanding all of the time and we are using that this monetary expansion because of the amount of debt that exists, because debts have to be serviced, then why is the amount of debt continuously increasing too? Surely if that sort of strategy was either working or genuine, debts would gradually be getting paid off. But from what I understand, like nations are continuously in more and more debt. Because to service the debt, that doesn't mean to pay it down. That means to pay the interest to the holder. Just the interest. So, um, uh, and where debts are paid down, new debts are taken out. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the debts are never going, the, the, the problem isn't that we, we have to pay off 300 trillion or else everything is, everything is doomed. It's not that. It's that the, the ongoing expansion has to, in the minds of investors, be related in some way to the returns that they're going to get. Gotcha. So, okay. uh, so if they don't think that they are going to get any return, then the, the, the value of that asset that the, that the debt is based on will fall. And if that becomes a generalized issue, then you have a, then you have a financial problem. Okay, well, I mean, doesn't this take us uh, then quite nightly, nicely to political power? Because couldn't that be one way to like quite dramatically force regime change then? If, if you could implement degrowth and kind of trigger a... Because this is a, lo- a lot of what they talk about as well, degrowth scholars. Like it's either degrowth, a controlled degrowth, or an uncontrolled financial collapse. So couldn't that then force a change in the financial system whereby this old kind of, you know, this historic evil of like making money off of money um, is no longer possible for investors or, or rich nations. So I'm going to take some di- different parts of that in. Yeah. So let's start with the, the controlled degrowth. Well, I'm not going to use the term degrowth because I, I, I don't think it makes it right. We, we need nope. to implement emergency plans to transform th- some things very fast. And those are the highest order things within the, within the world system. So that is, um, most importantly, energy, food production, and debt write-downs. Those are, those are the things, and there are other things as well, but those are some of the most important things that we need to have emergency plans that we can then follow for rapid transformation now we might be talking uh, you know using different terms for the same thing i'm sure there are some degrowth scholars that would <clears throat> you know agree with that and i would agree with their with their i'm not trying to i'm not trying to diss people that do and, and good things i'm 
but like, of course. You know, how do you move things out of that, uh, the academy to the, to to reality, to social reality, and, and into power? So then, the question is, how do you develop the power to deliver these uh, these emergency plans and do so at the the national, the transnational, and the international levels, which all seems balmy. The term that I'm knocking around at the moment for you know something which isn't a green new deal or degrowth is a green democratic revolution, which has the green because it we need to have uh, ecological transformation, the democratic because you know democracy is basically the most radical thing full stop, which is why they try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. So, um, uh, I'm just going to take a small detour here for a second. So Antonio Guterres, the, the UN General Secretary, has clearly been reading a lot of climate science. And the guy is shit scared because he's, he's just sitting there all day. He's reading the climate science. He's then looking at the social system and going, oh, my God, we're not doing anything. Oh, my God, we're not doing anything. And every single time he's able to put out a press release that's going to get coverage, it all goes, ah, come on. Like, um, and he had one think last year or earlier this year whatever and he said you know we're i won't do a portuguese accent he said um, <laughs> we're we're uh, um we're on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator and he's completely right apart from one thing right we we don't have our foot in the, the accelerator we are tied up and gagged and bound in the boot of the car and the ruling cars are driving it so it's not just a question of like, oh, we need to collectively come together and take our foot off the accelerator and maybe change course a bit, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have to find a way to cooperate, to untie ourselves and each other, burst through, to really extend this metaphor in a really tortured way, burst <laughs> through the back seat, force the, the driver out of the driving seat of the moving car, learn how to drive. And not drive off the cliff, which is extremely, you know, extremely possible. And, you know, maybe that's not technically possible. You know, maybe the, car, the, the propulsion of the car is too, you know, we're too close to the edge and the car is already moving too quickly. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's what democracy is. Democracy is, is not parliament. Democracy is certainly not the, the US system, which is set up explicitly to be anti-democratic. No, it was how do we insulate the system from, from, from popular power, popular control. So the only way in which we can actually deliver these emergency plans would be through having a democratic economy and a democratic politics. A democratic economy means large-scale planning of the, the, you know, the most important elements of it. And that is a revolution, which is why you have revolution in the, in the term, because it's political change it's a social change but also and i you know think this is important in the kind of what the left posture is to regime break to system breakdown which we're experiencing has to be anti-regime let and 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 let me explain it because otherwise the anti-regime forces go to the hard right and if the left tucks in behind as the left wing of the uh, the, the management state, which is trying to technocratically limit the catastrophe of breakdown, 
will never get popular sports. But that's basically, I and mean, we, we, we've tested this recently, I mean, because that's basically what happened with COVID. You know, with COVID, the, the hard right went, ah, no, no science, no nothing, ah, right? And the left went, why? Oh, it should be very sensible. And, you know, basically, let's listen to what the government said. And tucked in behind us, like the left edge of the as of the administrative state, um, and of course, politically, that's very bad because who's benefited from politically from COVID? I mean, you've had a massive expansion of the hard right in huge numbers of countries, and in British politics, for example, that's the coming course. You know, the trend scenario is we'll have a a really crap Labour government, and the hard right will be the main pole of opposition to it. Um, Trump coming back, you know, the Bolsonarismo is hardly over, Modi is unbelievably popular, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, yes, so that I've, I've forgotten what I was saying, but I think what I was saying is that our, our, our posture as well has to be like totally anti-systemic. We're not yeah. coming in to try to get some reforms to try to ameliorate just some of the some of the crises because we, it's actually not possible from where we are in the system the things that the the um the choices that progressive forces had to make let's say 50 60 years ago where the system is still has a lot of expansion a lot of road left to run with it in it saying well, look, if we get involved at this point, we can improve the bargaining position of this group and that group. We can ameliorate this crisis. We can resolve that. By crisis, I mean normal functioning crisis. This one and that one, we can improve these conditions. We'll change the social settlement, this amount. Where we are now, so close to full-blown systemic breakdown, we don't really get that much for it. The Green Democratic Revolution. I think this is... This is so interesting, right? Because obviously, I mean, one of the main issues with um, one, of, you know, there's so many bloody issues with politics today. I mean, the fact that it's national when we have international co- corporations and a planetary crisis for one. Um, but it is so difficult to get people excited about politics because they've sort of seen through the two party system now where it's just like the same thing over and over and over and over again. So you have to offer something new. But I think what's quite difficult for the left or for like really like a progressive uh, revolution is that if you take that kind of thinking to its logical end, I mean, it's essentially, you know, you kind of end up at like, why don't we just abolish the whole thing? <laughs> you kind of end up at anarchy, right? Where like communities have a sense of sovereignty and they get to make decisions for themselves and they get to take care of each other and all this kind of thing. Um, whereas, so like, the logical progression of really progressive leftist, like thrusting um, thinking is kind of the undoing of the, of the tool itself in order to sort of break through into like, you know, a new world order or whatever. Whereas the right, it's kind of the doubling down of the thing. It's constantly um, making itself a firmer force, right? It's kind of like the difference between like, like, um, like a womanist spear. Yeah. Um, and like the womb allows for like new things to grow. It is, it is life giving by its very emptiness. Whereas the spear, I mean, that thing will kill you. Um, <laughs> like this is the difficulty with that kind of thinking, I think is, as well now. Um, let alone the forces that exist to try and undermine and impeach and um, 
torture and twist that kind of ideology. And I mean, you'll know this better than most, given you were in the heart of the, the Corbyn campaign and saw him getting taken down by the right wing nut jobs, allegedly, on the inside of the Labour Party. Um, well, there's a lot there. Um, oh, pick any right, bit. So, so, okay, so to, to start at the, at the beginning, um, yeah, most people quite rationally don't follow politics, don't believe in it, and so on and so forth, because they're smart and we're stupid. If we follow politics, we're basically stupid, because um, uh, we, as you know, you get all these supposedly intelligent people on the internet being like, oh, he'll do nice things when he gets in. <laughs> no, 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 no. Labour will, no, they will, they won't. They're being clever because actually, if you don't promise you'll do anything good, then you'll do things good or whatever, right? Okay. I mean, you need an advanced degree to be that stupid. Um, but, you know, most people, that's, they're, they're, most people are not that dumb. Um, and uh, the changes that we need to make to our political system go well, well, well beyond like having a better party in, changing who some of the MPs are and so on and so forth, because it is structurally set up to insulate the ruling class from popular pressure. And you see this, I mean, it's painful. I, you know, I worked in Parliament for, <clears throat> I guess, about four years for for Corbyn and for Labour um, and you can see it all the time it's unbelievably you know it's unbelievably painful but you look at all of our institutions you know, the Bank of England is set up so that um, uh, a massive chunk of macroeconomic policy which affects how much money people have it's outside of political conversation right at band, but, and they, which they're like oh it's good you know technocrats will do it which means no the elite consensus will take over and the elite consensus doesn't care what uh, you know, what's in the interest of ordinary people, which is why they decide against the interests of ordinary people at every conceivable possible juncture. Yeah. Um, the broader political system also functions um, in that way through, uh, through lobbyists, through the revolving door between the top levels of the civil service and the corporate sector. And that's why you get the outcomes that you get. And in, under normal times, Things that the overwhelming majority of people support are not on the political agenda, which is why this whole, the idea that there is a centre in politics is a complete fiction. The centre does not exist. It's, it's constructed like the centre is just the moderate midpoint between the right and the left. No, the centre is elite consensus opinion. That's it. And an elite consensus opinion is almost always massively in the minority. And so you have to work very hard to prevent things which are massively in the majority from getting political expression. So, you know, you look at polling and between two thirds and three quarters of the people, support, including, generally speaking, the majority of people who voted Tory in the last election, support things like public ownership of energy, water, rail, mail, so on and so forth. They support a £15 an hour minimum wage. They support a wealth tax. They, you know, all of these things which are you know, considered way, way on the on the left. They're not on the left. That's actually the centre, right? If if you're talking about where is the where is the mainstream British public opinion, and it's such strong public opinion because no one ever says it in the public sphere, and when they do, they are ridiculed. 
So you have all of the, the, the communicative apparatus of, the, of civil society, particularly the media, but also think tanks and so on and so forth, saying, oh, all this nice stuff that you want, you can't have it. Oh, what, you, 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 you want to you, you have a nursery place for your kids so you can work and also have a kid? No, can't, can't have it. Oh, right. you, you think the, you, you don't think there should be a, a tax loophole so Rishi Sunak pays a lower rate of tax than you and me? Sorry, can't do it. No, and there's no politician that's going to, um, to speak in favour. So right. this is also what I mean with, with, with how you know, progressive forces need to be properly anti-systemic. It's not like we want to be junior partners within that system. Because you, you, know, you, get, you get swallowed up. And the reason, now just to say one more thing based on, on the Corbyn stuff, the reason why Corbyn had to be defeated and destroyed and now since then basically erased from the history books as anything other than this horrific aberration is because Corbyn was a horrific aberration from the perspective of elite consensus opinion because you had an alternative that was put forward, which, pe- which people could go for. Now, of course, there are many things that we did wrong. There are many structural failures. There are many limitations from the, from the Corbyn project. But fundamentally, it put forward an alternative which for a huge chunk of the population is common sense, and therefore it must be expunged in favour of, you know, let's take water. Um, you know, public ownership of water is like, 75% plus popularity, right? It's so obvious. And yet Labour are, um, are um, plotting with the privatised water companies, according to elite email from, what, from, I think it's the boss of Seven Trent Water Company, to allow them to keep, keep in private hands, but through, you know, it's a public interest company or, you know, some other, you know, some other technocratic fix. Um, I don't really know how much I've, I I didn't really answer your question. I just sort of went on three different rants that intersected slightly. But that's fine because I said three that uh, my own had three different rants. I think that's that's totally fine. Um, I suppose was quite. Let's leave the kind of like metaphysical womb versus spirit thing aside because that we could probably talk about that for hours. And let's go back to focusing on like these forces that exist to undermine popular power mm-hmm. um, and maintain the, the, the ruling class. Um, I mean, how do we have, given, given, given the media is controlled by the ruling class as well, given that we don't have control over the narrative, therefore, given that we have, it's very difficult to get access to power because power coalesces in such a way as to ensure that anyone who is entering into it um is going to play by the rules given that we had that kind of like once in a lifetime aberration corbin who lost and given as well that the revolution needs to be global because you cannot have sort of a you know a uh popular revolt in one country that won't then be taken down by the global capitalist regime in some way cia um how do we have a green democratic revolution? How do we organize a green de- democratic revolution? And also, how do we reclaim the word revolution? Because a lot of work has been put into undermining that as well as something that's dangerous and kills people and never actually works. Oh, well, I'll start with two extremely optimistic Yay. points, right? 
the first is, my God, they have to work so hard. They have to work so hard. They have all of the money and all of the power and still everyone fucking hates them and no one thinks the system works well. <laughs> yep. Right? So, you know, let's not get so silly like, oh, you know, they people pe- people are just happy going along. They're eating their soma. It's brave new world. No, it's not. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work for most people. And even when they have full spectrum control o- over the media saying, you know, this is bad and this is bad and this is bad and this is stupid. So the, the common sense of the country is social democratic, left social democratic, even on lots of policy issues. Where the media is really effective is where it has a concentrated hate campaign against a particular group of people or, or people. Then it, then it can really change um, public opinion. And that's, of course, you know, that's an, that's an objective force that we have to compete with. But in general terms, you know, they are, they're, not, they're not doing terribly well. The other optimistic thing to say is, yeah, sure, transformation has to happen ultimately at the global level. But everything starts somewhere. And, and, and each thing that happens can encourage the next thing to happen. And, and you know, generally speaking, that is how change does take place. It happens in one place, then rapidly in some other places. It may get defeated in the first place, but it's had profound effects in, you know, uh, other countries. You know, the, I can't remember, was it Emmanuel Wallace? Some, you know, someone made the point that um, the French Revolution happened in Denmark. It's like, okay. from the point of view of 50 years after the French Revolution, you know, you've got the, the monarchy back and blah, blah, blah. And someone's like, yeah, but, you know, all the, most of the things that they fought for in the French Revolution, they have in Denmark. They didn't before the French Revolution. Right now, then, then they did. Um, so you know, those are some basic optimistic things. Now, to get into the and therefore, like you know, let's not be defeatist about it. Like they are not running the system well, and people can see that. Right? That we, you know, we think that we're doing worse than they, than we are because we spend. The, what we tend to hear is the media. We don't tend to hear what people think. So you hear someone who seems like they're the voice of normality on the media saying, oh, no, I couldn't do that. Right? That's not actually a normal person. That's someone who is there because they will fulfill the role of hearing like a normal person who, who believes that thing. Are they, you know, everything, not everything, but a very large amount of what we see and hear is formed by selection bias. Now, there's, like, there's a, have you seen this amazing interview from years ago with um uh, what's he called Andrew Morris doing Noam Chomsky. Chomsky yes and um uh and he says and um you know, Andrew Morris sort of says in an incredibly pompous way you know journalists we're a stroppy disputatious lot you know how are you saying people are telling me you know telling us what to think and and Chomsky says no I'm not telling you anyone's told you what to think what I'm saying is that if you thought something different you wouldn't be sitting opposite me now asking me the questions and that's yeah. how you know that's that's how it functions. So we shouldn't, in as you know, people who are active on for radical social change, environment, whatever we want to call it, we shouldn't internalize that too much and think that they, you know, that the, the actors are are actually reality because because they're really because they're not. So now, you know, practically, what what can we do? Um, 
and it's of course it's going to be different in different national contexts for obvious you know obvious reasons but those do need to add up so in the uh there are some commonalities so the the first thing i was saying was have a a, a fully anti-systemic posture right like so let's take spain for example podemos basically has got swallowed up by and i've got Lots of friends in Podemos, lots of respect for them and also for Samar, the new left force afterwards, work with them great. But they have been swallowed up into uh, you know, the left part of the, the block that fights against the, the right-wing block. Now, it's a necessary role that they're playing, but the next force needs to sit outside of that. Um, so that's one thing. Next thing is uniting different types of struggles diff- into a social majority with one line of antagonism, one line of attack against the people that are in power. And that needs to be our, you know, that needs to be our line of antagonism. We need to find things and issues and events that people care about that brings together the big social blocks that we have. So people as workers, people as women, people as disabled, people as racialized and so on and so forth. Uh, to, into having a, a united front. And then when there has that united front, it needs to have a radical democratic element, extremely radical democratic element, as in this is not just we're changing some of the people that are at the top of the state. We have to go in to democratize the state, which means that we can then democratize the economy. So that means building democratic institutions that can manage the economy. Mm-hmm. and have a popular participation within them. For example, like small thing, but for example, there should be a day a year, which is tax day, where everyone does their taxes, which should be a national holiday, but also it should be participatory economic planning day, where you say, I think we should spend more money on this and less money on that, and we should do this, blah, 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 blah. And that can be an aggregation of, of what people want, which then gets fed into what, you know, what comes out. There needs to be hugely at every single conceivable level more democratic participation not only because it will yield far more progressive outcomes but it is also far harder to attack you know it is Mm -hmm. so much easier to say oh that jeremy corbyn bloke what a bastard Mm. than it is to say wealth taxes are bad and then it's one step even more difficult to say, yeah, I don't care that the majority of people have just come up with and said that, um, that they want wealth tax for this reason. The majority of people are bastards. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a really weak argument. It's really hard to demon, you know, it's, it, it's that the majority is much harder to demonize than um, you know, something which can be polarized around. Exactly as you were saying earlier, you know, how do you stop something being seen? you know, uh, left so that it polarizes without losing it. So I don't see, you know, normally when the people are saying that, they want you to merge into some ridiculous, mushy, let's all hold hands with Rory Stewart and, you know, flop into um, the elite consensus thing, but from a kind of nicer, nicer. And that's not wrong. It's a very hard line, an extremely hard militant line, because they, the, we, we need to to go back to the incredibly tortured um, Antonio Guterres-inspired uh, car and cliff analogy, you know, they do be really forced out of the seat. 
you know, really thought it. And, you know, we're nice people. So we'll probably just tie them up and put them in the booth rather than throw them out of the moving car because we're nice, right? But they have to be pulled out of the seats and stop driving the car. Okay, okay. I want to pause you here then and ask, not just based on this metaphor, but can we get there without violence? Um, so violence is not the thing that will most likely bring forward a social majority for power. Mm-hmm. But that social majority for power will be met with violence necessarily. Yes. Um, you know, uh, which is even if we set up a really nice democratic system where people choose democratically to have a fairer distribution of wealth, power and opportunity, which is what people would choose, that is taking away wealth and power from a small number of people who have it, who also have tremendous access to violence. And so the, you know, violence therefore will come, but it will come as it already happened. The system relies on a tremendous amount of violence to maintain itself um, at every single level. I mean, of course, at the, yes. at, at the geopolitical level, uh, to secure access to resources, the overthrow of governments, but also um, the policing of workers in mines and so on and so forth. And even in in societies in the global north, if you if you look at uh, types of employment, types of employment related to security have also increased quite a lot in the last thirty years. You know, more people whose job it is to either meet out, respond to, or in some way negotiate with violence has increased um, in you know in societies in the in, in the global north. So, I mean, the system is not like those that wish to change the distribution of power in the system are the violent intrusion into the system. You know, system, nor- system normal, part of, part of the crisis of system normal is, uh, the, meeting out of, uh, is the meeting out of violence. So, yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, to, to go back to the, to the number of your question, we have to be clear-headed about the fact that if you are going to take away things from the people who have the most wealth and power in the world and the greatest access to violence they will mobilize that. The question is not morally, but strategically, what is the best response? And if they have all the guns, probably standing there with your little pistol is not the best, probably not the best response. That's not because standing there with your little pistol is, is some moral deficiency. And, you know, if they're being violent, we can't beat it with, you know, anything like that. It's just, well, if they've got the guns, you've got to find it. You, know, you, you, you've got to find the, the terrain to fight on. And the train yes. fight on isn't, you know, isn't going to be who's got the most warships. Yes. But also, I mean, even before that, right, before we get to a, a point of like taking away, even being able to enter onto the terrain, mm. even being able to um, begin the fight. Um, and I love the, the French word, it's déclenché, like trigger, yeah. you know. How, because there's so much talk, right, in the in the movement around violence and nonviolence, and how you know, oh no, it's nonviolent movements that are always the best way, and always create a better system. And then, um, obviously, Andreas Malm wrote his bluff pipeline and said there is no such thing as a nonviolent revolution. The moderate flank is always supported by a radical flank, essentially, which allows for the moderate flank to be invited to the table. Um, and we do sort of seem to be um, tied up in like moral knots at the moment around, are we really going to let 
the end of the world happen um, at the hands of just a very, very small number of people because we are unwilling to fight on that terrain, essentially. Um, so even before it comes to a stage of like, say, the, the, the ruling class putting up a fight against what we wish to take away, because undoubtedly they would, but how do we even get to the stage where we have the right, maybe not the, the might, the political might to begin that fight as well? And will that sort of be forced to, to be violent? I mean, how long do we wait to see that we are not being listened to? So to answer your two questions in, in one, well, hopefully in, in one way, um, the, the debate between violence and nonviolence, reform and revolution, whatever, whatever, those are debates that, that tend to happen when basically nothing's going on, right? Like mm. we don't have agency, we don't have a campaign, we don't have a thing which is challenging power so we can have the abstract discussions right mm. when we do have uh agency we have a vehicle we have a, a a project which is which is doing something then we won't really be having those debates because they it's going to be incredibly shaped by contingency and by what's in front of us and 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 what's there and again to be optimistic and optimistic looking at the frailties of the existing system like they don't have this on lock they really, really did. Like, Corbyn wasn't meant to take charge of Labour. I'm not saying that there's going to be a new Corbyn in the Labour Party, but like, the Labour Party was, was a threat to the capitalist class 100 years ago. It did make substantial social reforms in the interest of the overwhelming majority of people 70, 70 years ago. And it has, over time, been uh, trained into a kind of more, more of a kind of house pet party a, a, a plan b for the for the ruling class you know they've got their a team they've got their party the tories and the tories rule and then eventually they really suck so bad that even within our anti-democratic system they're going to get chucked out so they give you plan b right and plan b comes in and yes okay fine we have they have to give some reforms and we get some stuff out of it but that you know that's the basic structure but even within that system it is sort of most you know in 2015 after whatever we had by that point, 35 years of neoliberalism, uh, falling trade union membership, you know, all of the objective things not looking good, Corbyn is able to win. Why? Because they changed the electoral system within the party. Why did they do that? Because one Labour MP punched a Tory MP in a bar and it caused a violence. Like, there's like a random chain of events that leads to this opportunity. And the reason there's an opportunity is because they're constantly having to fight hard to put, what's the right metaphor? I'm terrible with metaphors as we're, <laughs> we're now learning. But, you know, it's like it, it, its hands are pushing down against water and it's still squirting through. It's finding yeah. that there's huge pressure that's building up and they're trying to hold it down. Yeah. And we don't know exactly how, you know, out of which knuckle gap, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a spurt, but there is going to be one. And uh, the job through whichever one it comes through is going to be the same strategically, but it'll be in a different, you know, different location. So it'll have to act differently and it'll be based on its contingencies. But it needs to challenge the system as a whole. It needs to unite 
different elements, different bits of society that make up the supermajority, but that form different places of guess and saying workers, women, racialized, et cetera, et cetera, into a common front to make a democratic assault. And then what that democratic assault is looks different in different, you know, in, in, in different contexts. Some of those might seem, might be quite traditional. Some of the, you know, like the Corbyn one was pretty, you know, pretty traditional. We tried to go through the first past the post electoral system to elect a better prime minister, right? That was the, you know, that was the model. Pretty simple, pretty, pretty traditional. There might be other ones. In some countries that really works. In others, of course, you can't do that. Um, And then it's the agglomeration of those revolts and those mutinies um, and you know, particularly important is uniting the, the, the what should be a generalized mutiny in the South, the global South, against the system as it is, against the, the specific mutinies in the North. I mean, you know, if we're talking about, um, you know, agency and who has, who, has, who has agency, who has the need to change things, you know, um, you know 150 years ago as workers of the world, you know, you've got nothing to lose but your chains. You know, if you follow that same logic, it's the the workers and peasants of the global south whose land is going to be further exploited for minerals, whose labour is exploited for the extraction of those minerals and also for industrial production based on it, who are going to have you know, huge so-called surplus populations that will be uh, that will be and and so on and so forth. I mean, there's potentially tremendous revolutionary agency there. But very disaggregated, of course. You know, that, and that's part of the uh, part of the, the, the necessary work is uniting people d- divided by geography, language, issue um, against common enemies. Because you know, we do we do have common enemies, and those common enemies again go back to the old the old metaphor. They're in the driving seat, and they're they're driving us off a cliff. They're driving themselves off a cliff as well, yeah. but they can't help that. Yeah, going to do anyway. And um, you know, if saying please don't do this, look, we have this nice science man. He's got this nice coat on. He's got all the graphs. He can really show you. Please take your foot off it. They can't take their foot off it. They won't. And and the, the existing system at the macroist level is unreformable. You know, we have seen that with uh, with climate climate breakdown. Didn't have to be. You know, Margaret Thatcher understood the climate yeah. was happening and thought that it could be managed because they were able to deal with the ozone layer problem. The difference is free radical capital, you know, uh, the destruction of the ozone layer is caused by free radicals um, uh, uh, interacting with the ozone layer and therefore dissolving it. Right? Free radical capital wasn't that important. So you can just say, piss off free radical capital, you're causing us all problems. Go away, you're ruining the party. And they go away. And then the mm-hmm. ozone layer grows back and you've dealt with the environmental problem and you can carry on the system as normal. Right. Fossil capital is not like free radical capital. So you can't just do that. We've tested that to destruction now for more than 30 years. Um, but we see it with everything else. You know, debt crises, you know, the, 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 the system that's meant to manage development and debt for southern countries only works to further exploit, you know, while, while Sri Lanka is going through its terrible uh, yeah, debt crisis, it's still paying the IMF money. Yeah. Ukraine uh, at war is still paying back 
the the IMF. You know, clearly that, and and as we were saying beforehand, you know, in the year two thousand, there was a debt write off for some heavily indebted poor countries, as that was what the the acronym was. Um, and a lot of those are are back in debt because that's how the system operates. Or take COVID. Now, in COVID, we had the technical capacity and the manufacturing capacity to inoculate the entire world in one year with COVID vaccines. With COVID vaccines, which were almost entirely produced with public money and public research. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. And we didn't because instead we followed some intellectual property laws, which could be waived. And there were provisions in the WTO in order to waive them. And yet that didn't happen. So we have tested to destruction the theory that if we give better information to those in charge about how terrible things are, they will realize that in their own interest and in the interest of everyone else that we need to change course. We've tested that. That doesn't, that, that doesn't work. Yeah. To be honest, it makes me like think to really extend that metaphor. It makes me think that if we ever got to the stage where we like ripped open that um, driver's door, it would just be a driverless car. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's in the fucking back seat. There's some idiots that think they're driving. Yeah. And we're all talking about driving it. Yeah, they're yeah, they're in the trust up in the back seat doing this with the wheel as if they're driving. Well, but someone is- needs to learn computing fast then, because I mean cars are made of plastic and computers now. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. How do you I'm sure they have a handbrake. I'm sure they still have a handbrake. Yeah, they've got to still have a handbrake. Yeah, they gotta have a handbrake. I suppose the great thing about that is like you can kind of at least take everybody out of the car. And let it go over the cliff. Um, I'm going to stop there with that metaphor. Otherwise, I'm going to get confused. And I'm going to ruin it for everyone. I already ruined it. That was such a nice little like punchline. Like we open the door and it's a driverless car. I shouldn't have taken it any further. Damn it. <laughs> James, this has been really, really great. I love how you've kept hitting the same points over and over and over again about what needs to happen, why it needs to happen and how to do it. Thank you. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Um, I really like Richard Seymour, who is a uh, British. Well, he's actually from Northern Ireland, so I don't know if he is technically British. Anyway, that, that, that bit doesn't matter. He lives in, in, in London. He, he is a writer, an eco-socialist. He writes also a lot on the rise of fascism, contemporary fascism, um, the psychology around mass support for the hard right and lots on eco-socialism stuff and he's very good excellent thank you so much thank you if you want to learn more i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.